the secrets of this February's Discorder with feature articles on freak heat waves, brass, did you die, New Balance, Natasha Broad, and CITR's Fun Drive, concert reviews, venue updates, illustration and short fiction, unearth it all in this month's issue, available around town and at local venues. Special thanks to this month's advertisers, Vinyl Records, Rickshaw Theatre, Live Van, Recruit in Canada, The Fox Cabaret, AMS Events, Extra Living, and Union Events. It all makes sense now. Congratulations. You've tuned into the best radio station around. This is Mac DeMarco. Have a blessed day. What you gonna play now? Bobby? I don't know. But whatsoever I play, it's got to be funky. The Soul Ship Enterprise. Saturdays at 7 p.m. CITR 101.9. Spartacus Youth Club Class Series presents From Ferguson to Vancouver, Down with Racist Cop Terror. On February 25th, Wednesday, 6.30, in the Irving Barber and Learning Center, Room 315 at UBC. Spartacus Youth Club at UBC, February 25th, Down with Racist Cop Terror. Good afternoon. It is Wednesday, February the 15th, uh, 18th, 18th. actually. Yeah, wow. Two, two weeks in a row I've got the date wrong. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. At least you got the month right. Yeah, we will start the tally right now. <laughs> to streak officially. Two. <laughs> you are tuned in to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver, uh, CITR, and uh, Ashley, Rohit, and myself. Uh, how, how's everyone doing? Pretty good. It's a reading uh, week. Here at so. UBC, yeah, yeah. So that's good. And we managed to get an alarming number of people in the studio. <laughs> yeah, uh, so out. many that we didn't even expect to, like, to actually fill it up. No, but it's great. It'll it'll be a, uh, an awesome, lively discussion. And what's that discussion about? Well, uh, later in the program, we've got an Oscar panel. It's a film and media panel. Is, is yeah, what we're filled call it. with a lot of people who have their credentials it's not just you know random talk happening we got people as we normally do here <laughs> no uh that's right so that'll be later in the show so stay tuned for that that's probably going to kick off in about uh 25 30 minutes or so mm-hmm. yeah and um, before that we've got um an in- well, we've got a little bit of a discussion about the talking stick festival which uh kicked off yesterday and i was able mm-hmm. to go to the gala event too we also have uh, a 
an interview with David Carr, who's a journalist who passed away yeah, just right. in the past week. We've got from our archives, we have that interview. And to start things off, um, we've got a, a short piece about um, about the Lunar New Year. Tomorrow yes, marks tomorrow. the Lunar New Year. That's yeah. right. I actually last week I saw some. It's the I think it's the Lion Dance. Yeah. Oh, really? I saw that. It, it was in the bookstore. It was really, really? cool. Yeah, That's I, so cool. I took a short video. Maybe I'll upload it to our one of our social. Media. Yeah, our for sure. Facebook, which people should definitely check out. We got great events. We have giveaways. Most importantly, giveaways, man. Very important. <laughs> if you like free stuff, it's the place to be. That's the yeah. place. To our be. support Facebook. Well, um, Fly Over Canada is um, is celebrating the Lunar New Year. Um, Flyover Canada is Vancouver's flight simulation ride, um, and they're presenting Flight of the Dragon, which runs now until March 5th. They invited us to check out their current show. Uh, so we sent our own Jacob Gruskovich to, uh, to enjoy the ride and to talk with the operations director, Lisa Adams. So here is Jacob's talk um, about the Lunar New Year-themed Flyover Canada. Hey everyone, this is Jacob from CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver. I'm here with Lisa Adams, the Director of Operations and Sales at Flyover Canada at Canada Place. Lisa, how's it going today? Great, great. We've been just been on the ride, so yeah, that's always, always makes my day fantastic. We were just on the ride. For those listening, Lisa and I just flew over China and Canada. It only takes 16 minutes, believe it or not. But uh, yeah, Lisa, how did this all get started? Yeah, really good question. We, um, the, the founders of the company, Andrew Stang and Stephen Geddes, they were you know, down in Disneyland, and there's a ride down there called Soaring Over California, and it takes you over California, as, it, as the title suggests. And they really love the ride, their families love the ride, they, you know, their wives, their kids, all different ages, and they thought, how cool would it be to do something like this for Canada, considering we have such a huge country? And um, yeah, the opportunity came up at Canada Place. There used to be an old IMAX cinema here, so that's the kind of size of venue that we're looking for to be able to put this ride in. And Canada Place are also here and promoting Canada as well, so the things, you know, everything came together really well and it kind of brought us to this point it took two years of construction on the side actually to sort of take out the old cinema and put in the new ride and build a new screen and then about a year and a bit of filming all over Canada as well in a um, special helicopter with a custom made camera mounted on the front so a long road to get here but yeah we opened June 29th 2013 and coming up to two years which is exciting and I understand that the Chinese New Year is not the only theme that you do here yeah, that's absolutely correct. We have our main film, Flyover Canada, that runs through the tourist season. So we start picking up in May when all the cruise ships and tourists start hitting Vancouver through to September. And then we head into our first seasonal event, which is Halloween, believe it or not. And then we move into Christmas, and we have an awesome Christmas special where you uh, fly over Canada, and then should you help Santa on his mission to find all these elves, you get a special flight over the North Pole, completely animated but absolutely amazing. Uh, and then you move into Chinese New Year and then back around into our Flyover Canada Summer Series. And the Chinese New Year is just coming up. Are you going to do anything extra special on that day? Yeah, for sure. On the actual weekend of Chinese New Year, so Chinese New Year is on the 19th this year, so that's Saturday and Sunday. We're going to have in some sort of demonstrations of some Chinese culture, so we've got some famous calligraphy artists coming in in the afternoon, and we've got a couple of lion dancers um, on both Saturday and Sunday, so it's a lot of fun down here on the, on the weekend of Chinese New Year. 
Now, Lisa, you've worked here for a few years. You've been on the ride hundreds of times, as you said, prior to our experience there. What's your favorite part of the ride? It never gets old. That's the best part of my ride. It always brings a smile to my face. But I do love when you soar over the over Alberta through um, with the with the horses. It's just amazing. You smell the grass. You hear the the sound of their hooves beating against the ground, and it's yeah, it's really fun. And in a similar vein, do you have any one story over your time spent here that sticks out to you? Well, yeah, if we think about it from a guest point of view, this past Christmas was amazing. We finally got our new Christmas show up and running, and I hold a big industry night, sort of get all the industry folk in and, and media as well to come in and see it, and we invite them to bring their friends and family down as well. And there was a little kid on the ride, and she turned to her mum when it got to the North Pole, and she screamed out in excitement and said, is this real or is this my imagination? And she was so excited, and, yeah... I I just yeah it stuck with me forever because i'm a big christmas fan as well but yeah it was it was cool awesome and um what do you hope uh, uh viewers leave this experience with yeah, I mean, I first and foremost, I hope they leave thinking that was amazing and that, that they had a fantastic time and got to see some of Canada. And I, I hope that it either inspires them to to see more uh, of Canada in their actual real travels or helps them reminisce about Canada. And if, if it's a local coming to see it, that it sort of connects with their Canadian heritage and pride and, and they feel proud to be part of such an amazing country. Awesome. Lisa, thank you very much. Uh, I had a lot of fun on the ride. I'm sure you will, too. Head down to Canada Place and talk to Lisa. She will show you a good time. Right to Play is an international humanitarian organization using sport and play programs to encourage the healthy physical, social, and emotional development of the world's most disadvantaged children. RTP at UBC is run by a team of committed university students who advocate sport for development, and it is the first university chapter of its kind. We want you to get involved. Together, we can educate students about sport for development, help raise money, and teach children here in the Lower Mainland about the importance of sport and a healthy lifestyle. So check us out at www.interchange.ubc.ca backslash rtpubc. All right, you're tuned in to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. Now, yesterday, I was fortunate to go check out the opening gala of the Talking Stick Festival. It was in the Roundhouse, Yaletown Roundhouse uh, Center, and I just thought I would share some of the festival highlights with you guys. All right, awesome. Uh, Yaletown Roundhouse is always a solid venue, definitely. It was, yeah, it was really cool. Uh, I've seen a few dancing performances there, and it's such a versatile space. And they're performing... Um they, they started yesterday, and when are they going until, just so people can know? Definitely. The festival runs until March, uh, well, yeah, February 17th until March 1st. So there's 13 days of the festival, and there's 30 shows in that time. Wow. Yeah. Um, so the opening gala was last night, and also at Yaletown Roundhouse. Until then, there's a, um, it's a visual arts, arts expedition coming to the fire, uh, and it was... Really cool. A lot of art that um, reflects the artistic excellence of established and emerging artists. Uh, there is photography and carvings, um, paintings, weaving and ceramics, uh, among more. And because it was the opening gala, there were also lots of performances, which was really cool. Um, one that stood out for me was um, Nyla Carpenter and David Newbery. Uh, and they're working on a... He, he's a singer-songwriter and she's a dancer. And um, they performed... 
a piece called um, Brief Encounters 21, which is a, a sort of a dance and music piece. And I just want to play a little bit of the music from that uh, for you right now. that's just a little bit of uh, guitar and then it goes into a sort of a longer dance piece uh, and it really stood out for me that last night. really cool. It was at the opening gala. Uh, a few of the other performers, there was Andrea Menard uh, who is a sort of a folk singer, a Métis folk singer from uh, I, I believe Quebec. Some people might recognize her. She was on Little Mosque on the Prairie. Oh, okay. I, I kind of remember that. It's an old show, yeah? Yep. Uh, and she she had really positive music all about celebration of life. There was also uh, one of them. There was the Louis Riel dancers, and they kind of taught everyone um, traditional jig, uh, a jig dance. And it was so. Did they, did they teach you? Yeah, I, I went up. That's <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it was it was fun. Uh, it took me back to my social dance days. <laughs> Um, and so, so that was at the opening event. Um, Coming to the fire, the visual arts is still going to be at mm-hmm. the theater, or sorry, at the Yale Town Roundhouse um, until the end of the festival, I believe, or until yeah, it'll it'll be there for a little while. I'll just mention a couple other things of the series. There's Children of God, which is a new music, uh, new musical by Corey Payette. Um, and it's a musical about an OG Cree family whose children were sent to residential school. Uh, and that is Saturday, February 21st, uh, with a talk back. Um, and that's something to watch out for. Another thing coming up soon at um, on Commercial Drive at the Café du Soleil is, uh, it's called From Talking Stick to Microphone. And uh, it's February the 20th, this Friday at 8 p.m. Mm-hmm. in... In honor of East Van Ghetto Poet, uh, uh, ghetto poet uh, Zacchaeus Jackson, um, who curated... Oh, Zacchaeus. 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 That's the one. Uh, yeah, no, I actually knew that guy. Um, he was an amazingly talented uh, spoken word artist, uh, slam poetry particularly. Uh, it was sad to hear him pass away uh, last year, but um, I'm, I'm glad, like, Café de Soleil was the place where all the slam poets, like, kind of met up. And it seems fitting that they're doing the tribute over there. Yeah, well, and especially because he's been he's been curating the event. So, um, from talking stick to microphone is a selection of the country's best independent musicians and slam poets going head to head. So that's definitely something to check out this Friday, uh, February the twentieth. And that is just a little bit of the Talking Stick Festival. Now. Um, 
I want to talk, uh, we've got a, a, an interview from our archives right now. Um, mm -hmm. David Carr is an American journalist and author. Uh, in 2002, he joined the New Yorker, or sorry, the New York Times, where he York became Times. known for his honesty and his, uh, his wry wit. In 2008, he published a memoir, The Night of the Gun, which detailed his cocaine addiction and some of the darkest chapters in his life. Um, Carr died earlier this week. And from our archives, we've uh, got a conversation um, with past host Megan Thomas um, in conversation with David Carr. So here, here is that conversation. And uh, we are actually going to hear from one more uh, push event, uh, David Carr, Truth and Lies in Life and Art. Uh, and what we're going to talk about is Truth and Lies in Life and Art. I spoke to David earlier today. He is a media and culture writer for a uh, columnist for the New York Times. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. Ooh. I know. He also wrote a book called The Night of the Gun, which is a account uh, of him searching for the memories of the time that he was addicted to such things such as alcohol and crack cocaine. Uh, and The Night of the Gun refers to a incident wherein he reported that he was confronted with a gun when one of his, by one of his friends and then finds out later he was the one with the gun. David Carr did not remember this. And mm. he questions, what are all the other things I don't remember mm. in my life? And so he wrote this book and uh, it was released in 2008 and he is also the subject of page one, in one of the subjects of page one inside the New York Times. So he will be uh, in on February 3rd. He's arriving this weekend. He's very excited. He's never visited Vancouver before, so um, he will be at the North Shore Credit Union Center for the Performing Arts at Capilano University in North Vancouver at 7.30 p.m. And he will be speaking with David Beers, founding editor of the New York, not the New York Times, uh, David Beers, founding editor of the TIE. And they will be talking about his book as well as uh, Truth and Lies in Journalism. So I wanted to speak to him about some of these subjects, and we spoke earlier today. And uh, thank you to David for speaking with us. You've been asked to speak at the Push Festival, which focuses on boundary-pushing art because of your experience as a culture and media writer for the New York Times, as well as your autobiography, The Night of the Gun, where you focus on... A time in your life that might be described as reckless at best? That seems fair. <laughs> Being a journalist writing about media and culture, is there an ongoing battle with memory and the truth? Um, is this something that is part of being a journalist, or is this something that you think is specific to your experience? You know, I think it's very much a part of journalism and human commerce and Everybody is always fronting in some way. Uh, let's take this interview, for instance. I would like to sound more erudite and witty than I actually am. I would like to get through it without saying anything stupid. So are you really are you talking with me or a bird to me that ends up on the radio? We, we live in an age, especially given the sort of tools of social media, where people do a, quite a bit of self-fashioning what you choose in terms of who your avatar is, what your presence is like on Twitter, um, is all an effort to sort of shape uh, uh, others' perception of you. 
the idea of journalism about media in a time when there's an expansion of how we interact with each other. But have you seen a change in, in the idea of truth as affected by these new types of med communication media? I was just talking to the head of a television studio in Los Angeles, which is not always the world headquarters of truth. Uh, <laughs> and while he was talking, I was able to fact check what he was saying and check it against the historical record. And, you know, I had all known thought one click away while I was talking to him. And I would say when I got into the business, you know, I guess more than 30 years ago, that wasn't the case. Uh, I, I might be able to figure out what the truth is once I hung up the phone, but there's, there's sort of a real-time ability to check what's being said against what's, what actually has happened in the past. That's one level. Another level is I can write and assert certain things. In the Monday column, I asserted that that the people from South Park kill Kenny in every episode, and it wasn't a matter of seconds after that story that went up where people said, no, they, they quit killing that guy after season six. And you could say, well, there's always been corrections, but then the correction was written in a fairly ornate way and a hilarious, unintended, hilarious way, and that ended up probably being bigger than the story on Twitter because the correction was so hilarious. Uh, um, I mean, the Internet is a great manufacturer of myth and probably a fair amount of lies, but it's also a place where it can be used to create efficacy and accountability and information as well. Well, you talked a little bit about fact-checking and the idea of fact-checking being a as much a kind of its own spectator sport and its own its own participatory part of say the election process or someone reading your column or anyone's column there's a an instantness and a participatoriness that can be both democratic and also annoying sometimes at the same time but that uh, I could not agree more with <laughs> what you just said <laughs> sometimes you... I feel like people are sitting just like crows on a wire mm -hmm. waiting for uh, some piece I've done to get run over so they can descend on it like roadkill and just pick it apart. Do you find that this um, enhances uh, debate and journalism, or do you, do you think that uh, it is a negative or perhaps just a change that we have to deal with? I think it's a change that we have to deal with, and I think in the main we're going to end up looking back and thinking that the journalism we're doing now is a lot richer and deeper than it was. You, you notice that I did... Uh, a one-minute video with uh, Matt Stone on the street, and it was shot in kind of crappy lights, and I did it with my iPhone, but I made sure the sound was okay. And I think it's kind of cool they have one more tool in the tool belt where that guy's just talking into a camera. I put up a minute of it. People, I don't have to stand between him and the audience. He can say what he thinks. And... I don't know, something about that makes me feel more powerful as a journalist and a communicator that I can, you know, sometimes uh, ask people on Facebook or ask people on Twitter what they think about X or Y, and then I can sometimes, when I'm going after sources, I can surround them more, so much more effectively. It used to be I could only call them at work. Now I can find just about any phone number that they have. I can 
pop up on their Facebook or their LinkedIn, or I can tweet at them. Um, it's also, it, it's like we've turned into uh, the guy in the monster movie. It's like popping up everywhere they look. They can't avoid us as well as they used to. It seems like art, uh, or when you are maybe producing something that's kind of on that line, such as a memoir or an autobiography, do you find that the art can sometimes speak more to truth because it doesn't have to hide behind that almost a facade of truth? Part of the correction I picked up by um, for uh, South Park was it corrected the fact that I said Kenny, the little guy in the orange parker, was ritually sacrificed in every episode. And the copy desk will said, no, that's not a ritual sacrifice. And I said, well, he gets killed in every episode, right? So that's a ritual. And no, the literalist didn't, didn't take to that. In the same way in my book, the parts of the book that are probably most true in spite of the fact that it's based on 60 interviews I did on videotape and 2,000 court medical documents I dug up and a lot of... Uh, a lot of other things I looked in are probably the most art-driven parts of the book. Favorite parts of the book for me are kind of weird and mystical, and I don't even know where they came from or whatever. And that was the muse talking as opposed to me, and I think sometimes the muse is more truthful than the natural human. The expectations for an autobiography. I did see some reviews um, that, that you know were praising the writing but wanted more in terms of uh, a direct address of, of certain, you know, root causes of this addiction that you had. and But at the same time, you know, you're writing about yourself. Uh, it seems like there is almost maybe a limit to how much truth one can tell about oneself. Yeah, the, the weird thing about touring the book, I, I toured quite a bit behind it, and it was in the New York Times Magazine, and it was on the uh, on 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 the bestseller list for a while. So the book got around a little bit, and what people would always want to know when they came up afterwards is what I left out. And I just said to them, you know, I'm in this book as somebody who sold narcotics, somebody who was addicted to crack cocaine, who was an alcoholic, was violent against a lot of people, including women. Uh, uh, what else do you think there might be? That, that you, you cannot satisfy the cultural appetite for periods, and they always want what, what is not known. And, and I, just, I, I found it sort of freaky. You know, journalism has this idea that you're uncovering some sort of objective truth and that bias gets in the way of that. But if bias, like, it seems that bias is inevitable in, in humans. I don't think uh, truth is the hole in the middle of the donut. It's on the donut somewhere. I don't like to speak in terms of bias. I like to speak in terms of fairness. And you're being square with the people that you're dealing with. Are you honest with them when you call about what you're calling about? If it's going to be a difficult story for them, do you make sure that they know that? Congruence, that kind of stuff, I think is really, really important. Well, David, when we first started this conversation, you used a term I found interesting, human commerce. Um, what is human commerce? What does that describe? I think the equities that you have are like your integrity, your reputation, your decency, your kindness. And um, I noticed a debate on Twitter today, um, a guy saying Twitter has turned dark and mean and ugly, but... You know, Twitter is self-selecting over and over again, and 
You only follow that which attracts you. And for me, Twitter is still a very positive, sunny place. And if somebody is putting out the bummer, I I just I block them. I don't follow them. I don't. I think part of the success of Twitter is it's 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 not like the acid bath that is the rest of of the internet where people shout at people and they think they're talking to no one. And I get emails all the time when I write about anything vaguely political. And the rhetoric is incredibly savage, and it can be from the right or the left. And as soon as I email them back, they calm right down, and they're so much nicer. You know, I email them back, and I say, I, I'm sorry you think I'm a complete moron. I missed the point. I do appreciate you taking the time to read and, uh, and, and feedback to me, albeit in a very bracing way. After I send that, then they immediately, I'll, you know what, I was really having a bad day, and I probably overspoke. And, I think a lot of times people are yelling in ways that, that they do because they don't think anybody hears them. Thank you so much for your time today, David, and uh, I look forward to meeting you in person on Sunday. It's an absolute pleasure. See you later. Bye-bye. Right to Play is an international humanitarian organization using sport and play programs to encourage the healthy physical, social, and emotional development of the world's most disadvantaged children. RTP at UBC is run by a team of committed university students who advocate sport for development, and it is the first university chapter of its kind. We want you to get involved. Together, we can educate students about sport for development, help raise money, and teach children here in the Lower Mainland about the importance of sport and a healthy lifestyle. So check us out at www.interchange.ubc.ca backslash RTPUBC. Welcome back to the Arts Report. You're tuned in to CITR 101.9 FM in in Vancouver, uh, and today we've got a um, a special a special broadcast that we haven't done before, where uh, we've got a media panel in here to talk about talk about the Oscars coming up. Um, so the studio is packed, and I'm going to go around and introduce everyone. First, uh, we have Blake Harstead, editor of UBC Philosophy Journal and Film Sock member. Hello. Um, also, uh, Morgan Yee, emeritus news director at CITR. Hello. Uh, Alex Chisholm, programmer, with CI, uh, programmer at the Rio Theatre, and also um, he works at Black Dog Video. Hello. Um, John Q is host of Q It Up. Hello, John. Hi. I was just on air like two hours ago, so it's good to be back. So if anyone has uh, been listening for two hours straight, they will recognize your voice. Uh, And of course, Ashley and Rohit are with us too. Now, we're also going to try and see, we're getting a little bit of feedback because we have so many microphones at the same time and so many headphones plugged in, but we also have over the phone, if we can connect to her, over Skype, we have Andrea Weatherby, who's in Los Angeles, and she is at the Margaret Herrick Library, um, and she is a motion uh, motion study member. Um, motion picture. Motion picture. <laughs> Just studies motion. Kinesiology. Yeah. Kinesiology, that's right. Andrea, uh, are you there with us? Now, I don't think that's picking up. I think we're we're going to have to drop Andrea, unfortunately, you could, because... You could, like, slam no, the phone into the microphone. I don't think that's going to bring up a lot of feedback. Okay. 
So unfortunately, we're gonna we're gonna have to go with everyone in the studio. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm, okay. So we've got serious Next questions time. here, and we've Wait, got. Hold on, hold on, hold on. How high is the volume on the phone? Um, just I don't know. How do you we're gonna we're gonna cut Andrea, yeah, unfortunately. We're just, we're just good. We're just good. Okay, we've got. Okay, we've got a room full of. Okay, okay. Thank you, John. Okay, so we've got a full studio uh, of a lot of people ready to talk about the Oscars. First question is, do the Oscars matter? Alex, would you like to go first? To some people, definitely yes, and I think most of all to the people in the films who are nominated for the Oscars, and then uh, beyond that, the people who actually win the Oscars, it matters a great deal. Following along with that, then, um, the, every year people talk about Oscar snubs, and if Oscars mm. are important to those who are nominated, is where does the importance come in with who they choose to nominate? If they choose to snub anyone, like this year, there are um, a few that people have talked about, um, is that important? Well, I can't really give you too much insight into the behind-the-scenes politics of the Academy and why they choose to nominate someone or, or why they don't. But uh, a lot of it has to do with campaigning by the producers and the studios who make these films. They do heavy PR to whip up interest for nominations. Okay, we're going to go around. Um, Oscars, do they matter, Blake? I think they they do a good job of at least bringing to attention some occasionally mid-range to smaller range grossing films as opposed to something like the Grammys, which usually just indicate the Shameless pandering. Yeah, <laughs> shameless pandering to the highest blockbusters of the year. Um, but in general, they seem to uh, sort of champion the people who have made the most money in the films. Well, let's talk about that now. Um, this year, one of the one of the comments that you see most um, often is that almost everyone nominated for um, for an actor award is is white. Um, does anyone have any any comment about that? John looks like he's leaning in. Come on in. To the <laughs> microphone. <laughs> oh yeah, I'll, I'll comment on that. Hey, Rohit here. Uh, <laughs> okay, see, like the way I look at it is. That if you're going to complain about this uh, this issue that's in Hollywood, then you have to realize it's not like the Oscars is responsible for making that a norm. That that there are just I think there simply are a lack of uh, actors that are uh, diverse in the first place in Hollywood, and it's a Hollywood institutional problem. It's a root problem that we have to tackle before you complain that, oh, the Oscars are not uh, diverse enough. I mean, frankly, Hollywood isn't diverse enough. And, oh, Morgan, it's got, it got something to say. Yeah, point, counterpoint, let's begin. Well, just like if you're saying, you know, the, the Oscars, you know, they can't do anything about it because Hollywood's not diverse. But if you look at the Oscars as bringing a lot of attention to specific things, yeah, mm. they can totally highlight more diverse uh, actors and actresses. Do, do you like, think they're electing not to do that, Morgan, or do you think this is something that's not, that's implicit? I think it's something they need to think more about. Mm. I can't see how you could possibly end up with this roster of people without well, having been uh, like, okay, well, this, you know, we're not going to consider other things. Yeah, you know, according to Contrarian Armand White, it's that the Oscars 
excised their surplus of white guilt last year when they uh, gave 12 Years a Slave uh, the best movie. And and then this year, now that that they have finished, (laughs) we'll we'll go back to the the standard way of things. I think that uh, people talking about, you know, you shouldn't complain about it or whatnot, I think it is actually good to complain about it because Mm, you mentioned that it is a root issue. And if we just accept, like, oh, it's the root issue, whatever, then we can't really change it. Whereas uh, if you do complain about it and you highlight the fact that everyone is white or some of these films that um, weren't nominated would be much more better then people who maybe weren't aware of that in the first place can kind of see the other side and they go oh maybe you're right that kind of thing that, that is an interesting point John that you made about uh, 12 Years a Slave because this year um, a lot of parallels could be made to mm-hmm. the movie Selma um, which although did- Y- y- yes, for sure. Sorry, continue. Well, and Selma, uh, Ava DuVernay, uh, I'm, and if I, I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that right. Um, John Travolta mo- moment. She, uh, she was not nominated for director, and if she had been, then she would have been the first black woman nominated um, mm-hmm. for a Best Director Oscar, a Best Director Award. I don't know if any of you saw the uh, Key and Peel sketch about Marshawn Lynch and <laughs> uh, what's his face? Um, uh, Sherman, Richard Sherman. Yeah, both of them doing a press conference and they're talking about the Oscars. And they're like, why? Why does <laughs> why does the Academy have a category uh, for best director and best picture? But then at the same time, at the same time, you do not nominate the person who directed the best picture, which is the case of Ava, uh, Ava DuVernay. I, I, and apparently they had room to include one more director. So that is something, that's where I begin, and I, I'll agree with Morgan, that's where you begin to question the Academy themselves and the committee. Oh. I'm not quite sure if there's a political thing going on or or if, yeah, if, if there was some logistical well, reason. I, I don't know if Blake cares to chime in on that, but I mean, I guess it is sort of the problem with evaluating art from an objective nominalist sense where you'll have like oh all of these films have cinematography which film excelled the most at cinematography and like <laughs> that of course it's problematic i think i think you know the question like whether the oscars matter and it's like yeah absolutely of course they matter to some extent like any other institution obviously they are also very politicized and uh going to your question jake you know as to whether or not she should have received... Sorry, what director was that again? Uh, Ava DuVernay, she directed no. Selma. The whether whether she should it. have received the award or not, you know, whether uh, that merit, you know, could have been questioned uh, for whatever reason. I mean, again, it's like all, all these things are very politicized and there's a lot of things happening behind the scenes. And it's not that I don't think she would have deserved, uh, you know, best director. It's just that I think we have to be conscious that all of these different institutions, even the Grammys, you know, for example, any major awards institution is working... Uh, with a great deal of political baggage. Like, again, you know, it's a tired example, but going back to 12 Years a Slave last year, uh, which I haven't seen, but I was an enormous fan of shame, so nothing against the director or anything. But uh, you did have, uh, you know, some anonymous Oscar Academy members saying that they voted for the film without even having seen it because they felt that it was important for that film to win. So, yeah, these things are always like, you know, you know like going back to, like, I don't know, uh, when uh, The Greatest Show in the World, like, The Greatest Show in the Earth? Sorry, I have a written out in my uh, notes, actually. But it's, it's you know, uh, roundly considered to be the worst film to ever have won uh, Best Picture. Greatest Show on Earth. And that was in 1952. And, uh, you know, same year, uh, New York's Critic Circle gave High Noon, which is still a classic today, Best Picture. And, you know, that had a lot to do with McCarthyism and the fact that the director of uh, 
uh, greatest show on earth was a huge red hunter and, you know, very, very right wing and very hard line in that aspect. So, I mean, there's always like with any of these things you like, and they're not, not to throw it out, you know, the baby out with the bathwater or anything, but yeah, of course they're like consumer shows. Now, is that something that, that we could see today with um, Clint Eastwood with, with the nomination for American Sniper? Does anyone want to touch on that? I think that film should have just been thrown out because it had that fake, (laughs) like that fake baby in it. Like that was, Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's just, just terrible. What is the fake baby uh, thing you're referring to? So there's, there's a, a scene. Yeah, there's a loving. There's a scene in the film where uh, the sniper. What's his name? Chris Kyle. Chris Kyle is cradling his newborn child, and it's very clearly a doll. <laughs> it's just very, very clearly uh, an, a non-moving, non-supple object. It's like just it's, non, it's hilarious. It's actually probably the best part of the movie. <laughs> and that would probably be the not even the greatest. That would not even be the greatest fault of the film. <laughs> well, so is that uh, is that an example of the Academy appealing towards someone like Clint Eastwood because of who he is, not because of the movies that he directed? I haven't actually seen American Sniper, but I, it's admittedly not on my list of, of movies to see. Yeah, well, Clint Eastwood's sort of a towering figure in the Oscar scene and just in film in general. He's won multiple times, Million Dollar Baby and Unforgiven. And this is just, I mean, I can't really tell you why they got that there. It might be because it's mildly propaganda. As you know, Not mildly, it's very, very propaganda. <laughs> There's a lot of Islamophobia happening right now. It's... After that movie kind of showed, there was like a trend going on Twitter that wanted to kill all Muslims or something. That is disgusting. I'm sorry. That's just disgusting. Well, I don't know. We can blame the film for that. That was after the yeah. movie came out. So, yeah, you can blame I, I, the film I, I, for that. I think, I think you can say, like, the film definitely showed or produced. Not not produced, but it, like, unveiled undercurrents that were already existing in American society. It stirred people up. It stirred people up into thinking <coughs> that they're being patriotic by killing people who, you know, are of a Muslim religion. And I think that's really stupid. Okay, what was the best film of the year? Under the Skin. <laughs> or Nightcrawler. In my opinion. I, I, I agree with both of those. But I'd probably go with Boyhood in terms of what's been nominated. I did not like Boyhood. <laughs> <laughs> Boyhood, I just felt, was such a feat in actual filmmaking. It took, was it 14 years to make? I just guess something, something took a long time to make doesn't necessarily <laughs> It's a good oh, thing. Well, that's the, coming that, I, I, that would I, not I, be the I, only I, reason. Again, but. It's, it's, I, I don't think, you know, if Boyhood is very good, although I think it's one of Linklater's like, weaker films, Personally, I think if Boyhood is very good, that doesn't really have a lot to do with its winning at the Academy Awards. Because, again, the Academy mm-hmm. Awards is really politicized. And it's like, I think Boyhood is a film that appeals specifically to a certain segment of society, which is very likely to be represented, overrepresented in critic circles, in like, especially in the Academy, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of, you know, white men and like kind of their story being put up on the screen. <laughs> oh, to be honest, I, I think. Yeah, like... And, and I, that's nothing to say, you know, the quality of Boyhood. It has nothing to do with that, but it. Mm. I think that juncture there, that can, you know, the fact that it was picked, doesn't speak to its quality necessarily. Necessarily, it doesn't detach. It doesn't dis- like detract from its quality either. Well, my argument but, for its quality isn't doesn't hinge on the fact that sure. it was nominated. Sure. Just of the fact that it's one that was okay, nominated. Okay, sure. I felt it was the highest quality. Yeah, film. for sure, for sure. Should people watch the Oscars? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. yes, and they should do it at the Rio Theater this summer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Doors at doors at three p.m. <laughs> doors at three. Doors at three p.m. It's free admission, full bar service, <laughs> and lots of crazy contests during commercial breaks. Is we it, show the live, uncensored CTV broadcast. Is it uh, is it all ages or there's... No, no, it's nineteen plus. Okay. <laughs> Come early. We're gonna have a photo booth there and. Like I said, lots of crazy contests and full bar service. Oh, that's cool. It's a yearly tradition. We celebrate the spectacle. And is there bar service? There's bar service, (laughs) yes. Amazingly enough. And, okay, so tell us, make the case then for, so the spectacle uh, to watch, I mean, it's a, by mid-February, we've seen the Super Bowl, we've seen Mm -hmm. the Grammys, we've seen, you know, the Saturday Night Live three and a half hour special. Of course. Oh, yeah, that was good. Well, this is sort of the, for the awards shows. This is really the the sort of granddaddy, if you, you want to call it that, because the Emmys and the Grammys and all that actually were established after the Oscars, and they follow the same nomination and voting pattern of the Oscars and presentation. And yeah, we're we're just there. I mean, we're an entertainment venue, the Rio, so we're really there. We'll we'll leave the question of artistic integrity integrity pardon me of these movies up to the voters but we're there to celebrate you know the speeches and the celebrities and the, the people having fun on the, the red carpet and there are <laughs> there are speech contests there yeah speech best acceptance speech yes best dressed you can you could dress up like someone from the movie or just dress glamorously like you're there at the awards. And uh, yeah, there's, and also prizes for whoever picks the top six categories the acting, the four acting categories, the best picture, and the best directing. So if, if the Oscars are a spectacle and to be watched as spectacles are to be watched, who then should we refer to when, well, for, for artistic quality in movies and. You know who, who who is an authority on that? Where do we where do we turn? Uh, I would like you to I would like to direct people to my show, uh, Queued Up, <laughs> uh, Wednesdays three uh, three to four p.m. On, actually, I I do nothing about movies. I I, I no, I'm not a good source. So John is not a good source. Yeah. I I would like to propose a alternative, and the alternative would be the internet is pretty much as good as it gets for determining. I think. Relatively speaking, the quality of certain movies, like whether it be IMDb, the Internet Movie Database, and their voters, in combination with Rotten Tomatoes, Metacritic, for me, it helps to see a broad spectrum of reviews. Now, I know John was like, like he was getting a little grumpy there. He's like, trying to hold something back. So, all right, you tell me. Yep. Tell me, tell me, IMDb, what's, you get the best and the worst, and you, you get like the users who are very passionate and actually care about their movie reviews, but then you get the people who are totally not passionate about movies and just say, oh, one out of ten, worst film ever, and that's literally their whole review. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of IMDb now, and I'm trying to remember what film got onto the top ten rated movies of all time before it was even released. Oh, good. I think it was Dark Knight Rises. I think that was the one. And oh yeah, the Batman movie. I think I think that was it. I think it was that. N- not not just to speak to IMDb because it's like yeah, people you know, were thinking it's gonna be super it's good. Like, uh, it's it is a good reference source for mm-hmm. you know technical aspects of a film. Yeah, like I've, I've I have no issue with IMDb using it as like a baseline for before you go to see a film. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of their a lot of their like movie playlists uh, have been actually they have a lot of really good stuff. Like it's not. 
it's not just like the highest grossing films. They actually do reach out into the nether sphere and find other films. So, but I mean, if you're more if you're more interested in getting a maybe a fully formed long essay opinion mm. on a film, where which would that be? I I would go I I would go to a site something like tinymixtapes.com. They usually survey a pretty broad array of films that aren't necessarily the biggest blockbusters of the year, or even ones made in English in North That's America. That's good. Yeah, 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 for sure. Like, the diffusion of, like, the blogging blogosphere, I mean, like, there's just so many good sites where you can kind of find what you're interested in. And, you know, as long as you're willing to put in a bit more research, like, you'll definitely not necessarily have your taste catered to, but, you know, you'll have stuff to explore. Okay, now, but one thing that out of all these suggestions we haven't left our computer yet like we're only online is there is there a space oh. for like an independent mm. theater like or check any... out yeah check out your local independent theater or community theater like the rio or you know or uh something the cinematech is locally, a good one yeah too. locally yeah. subsidized cinematech like band city theater city. yeah uh cinematech is excellent although they don't do as many new films as band city mm-hmm. does yeah, in Kitsilano there used to be. Well, there kind of still is Fifth Avenue Cinema, but that was taken over in the past few years by Cineplex. Thank goodness. But they, they still do show a commitment <laughs> now to showing. I not... can sit in my reclining seat <laughs> and enjoy my enormous popcorn. Wait, are you being sarcastic? Because I love I... that. <laughs> you like you got something against reclining I mean, seats? Yeah, I just best of both worlds. Best of both worlds. All right, so. Um... I was going to propose a question to the floor, and that is, um, if the Oscars are considered kind of like, they're almost considered like a universal, even though it is mostly English-speaking films and American-British films, um, is there maybe a way we can make the Oscars more global? I mean, there is a category for best foreign films, but if foreign films were able to compete... Um, this is just hypothetically. Do you think it would help if foreign films were able to compete in all the categories? I mean, these days most they, of them are subtitled, so you can understand them. Like, I, I think they are allowed to, are they not? Like, it's just a matter of they just don't prestige and them yeah. getting around and like how much they're marketed in North American markets. Like, is that not the case? I was under the impression that they could be in anything, but that there's a specifically like foreign films just like there's specifically like female actresses highlighted because I think well, that that's something that would get same, overlooked it's the same thing with any I guess like, the same idea with any news cycle report you know any kind of like magazine blog that's rec- reporting on this kind of stuff and yeah they'll have like a they'll have a North American European purview because we live in Canada or you know the United States and it's like I, I don't know I feel like it can kind of be tokenizing sometimes to like hear mm-hmm. this country say ah this was the best international film <laughs> And it's like, uh, it, it's, it's rare, cool. but there have been examples of foreign language films nominated for best picture and not just best foreign language mm-hmm. picture. Mm-hmm. Like Il Postino in the uh, early 90s, an Italian film. And then in the early 70s, Cries and Whispers, it's an Ingmar Bergman movie. But a lot of that, I suspect, has to do with just the films, the foreign films that happen to get best distribution within mm. North America. Those films had heavy distribution here. And I know for a fact Il Postino was distributed by Miramax, which was the big indie powerhouse at the time. So again, a lot of it's the PR and the campaigning mm. and the money spent behind the scenes to get your film nominated. So I'm thinking of the they, These weren't totally obscure, tiny foreign films. They were given big time distribution in the U.S. at the time. 
life is beautiful if that's i think is another one that i'm that yeah i think that was actually up for best foreign language and best picture actually mm-hmm. you're right yeah and he that was rare but he crossed over and won best actor for a non-english speaking role roberto benini <coughs> and in canada should we watch canadian films should we watch more canadian films <laughs> yes <laughs> And and why? <laughs> because it's a necessity to support a local, like, idiosyncratic culture and cultivate its art. And, you know, not that it's necessarily pitted against the mainstream, but that there have to be alternative voices. Yeah, yeah. Every, that, other, yeah. so every other country has, you know, an indigenous film industry, and why can't we? So like, we uh, should definitely try to Canadians, see Canadians, they rely too much on American television to view themselves. And I think we kind of stereotype ourselves mm-hmm. into thinking Canadian films are kind of artsy or they only focus on, like, the wilderness or something <laughs> like that. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of sad, to be honest. That's why we should see local content and, and actually re-educate ourselves on what it, like, what it is to be Canadian right now. It, it is sort of like a self-limitation. I feel like that's, that's the problem with a lot of CBC programming, CTV programming, is that it's like it's so... Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> and it's bad. And it's bad. And it's because it's, it's directed it's towards this like... the same thing over and over yeah, again. It's, it's directed not bad, towards this kind of like... Say, it's just overexposed and everyone knows what Canadian. it is kind of thing. <laughs> Corner Gas is possibly okay, no, the worst show <laughs> ever broadcast. I, okay, I love TV. Corner Gas. As someone oh, who's God. from a very okay. small town... That was like, yes, thank you. This is so much. I, this is I, so yeah, much I my life. It's always about Americans like tuning into Corner Gas somehow, <laughs> and I have never heard anything good like in terms of their reception of it. Well, American like they like Trailer Park Boys, kind of. Yeah. There is the maritime version of Corner Gas, which is called Republic of Doyle. <laughs> oh my god. But but that's perhaps another issue. Trailer Park Boys. So I just want to say I'm from. Where it's filmed, Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. That's a highly accurate representation <laughs> of where I'm from. It's really not comedy. The documentary There's for you. Very <laughs> serious, serious realism going on there with Trailer Park Boys. Okay, I, th- I think we are going to have to wrap it up a little bit. I want to thank all of our panelists. Unfortunately, we couldn't get Andrea Weatherby um, on the line and. Do apologize about that. But John Q, host of Q It Up, Alex Chisholm, programmer at the Rio Theater, and also um, he works at Black Dog, Morgan Yee, Emeritus News Director, and Blake Harstead, editor of UBC Philosophy Journal, as well as a Film Sock member. Now, we've got to talk about some events. We've got... Um, and we can we can go around or we could just kind of fire them off. I'll just start right now. So Studio 58 presents the Risky Nights production of No Strings Attached, the second Risky Nights offering of the season. Uh, and it's an adaptation of the iconic Pinocchio tale directed by Leslie Silverman and on stage until February the 22nd. The Hatsuba Festival is in its 15th year and programming kicks off, uh, kicks off at a popular downtown nightclub with Israel's internationally lauded dance company. Uh, Maria Kong um, is in our is in their first North American appearance, uh, performing at the Backstage Lounge. Uh, It's a hip multiple art experience that combines dance, a live rock band, theater, and an interactive interactive media technology. This is a cutting-edge event that is not to be missed. Another thing for your consideration is, for the first time in the company's history, Ballet BC presents Miami City Ballet in a program of George Balanchine. Yep. Yep. All right. Revolutionary choreography at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre for 
for performances February the 19th to the 21st, 2015. Destroy Vancouver 12. Uh, <laughs> Destroy Vancouver is a series of experimental music nights that bring together uh, some of the world's most influential improvisers with local sound artists and musicians. Uh, Destroy Vancouver is curated by drummer and sound artist John Brennan and presented by Vivo Media Arts Centre. It is from 9.30 to 1 a.m. this Thursday, the 19th, and tickets are $15 online or at the door. And the Northwest Comedy Fest presents David Cross's Hits followed by Skype Q&A. So the stand-up comic, writer, and actor David Cross, as you might know him from Arrested Development, Mr. Show, can add director to his resume with the release of Hits, making its Canadian premiere at the Rio Theatre. Moving is at 9 p.m., and the Skype Q&A with David Cross is to follow. This is a pay-what-you-want event. So, you know, pay what you want. Get in. Friends of the Library Book Sale Fundraiser. Fundraiser. <laughs> February 20th to the 22nd, uh, North Van District Public Library are hosting their legendary book sales. Um, a variety of uh, books, all ranging from 50 cents to $2. And on Sunday, everything is half price. And you can get a bag of books for $3 or a box of books for $6. Oh, also in North Vancouver, there is a call for gardeners. Yes, you heard me, gardeners. The North Vancouver Community Arts Counter is uh, seeking beautiful private gardens on the North Shore to feature in the Art in the Garden Tour. So if you're interested in submitting your garden for this great cultural community event, please download a garden application form, complete an online application form or event at events at NV, as in Valentine, artscouncil.ca. That's all one word. The deadline is February the 21st. I uh, just want to briefly mention uh, Ken Lum, who you'll probably know, uh, designed the East Van Cross neon sign. Uh, he is having an opening reception for his uh, project, Vancouver especially, uh, Saturday, February 21st, 2 to 4 p.m. Uh, Ken Lum will be there. Brian McKay, uh, McBay as well. Uh, Vancouver especially, a Vancouver special scaled to its property value in 1973, then increased by eightfold by Ken Lum, is the first commissioned work presented at 221A's new outdoor site as part of the semi-public program at 271 Union Street. That's 271 Union Street. looks really interesting. And just to clarify, that's a one-third replication of the classic Vancouver special house. Is that is that what's happening? Uh, yeah. The installation, one-third scale replica, mass-produced Vancouver architectural style of homes known as the Vancouver special, popularized from 1965 to 1985 with an estimated 10,000 homes built. I've always thought the Vancouver specials would be a great band name. Um, also, <laughs> on the 21st, Vancouver International, or Van, Van City Theatre presents Oscar short films. So the live action shorts are on at 11.30, and the animated shorts are on at 1.40 in the afternoon. So you can check those out before you go to the Rio. Yeah, which is on the 22nd. The Rio Theatre presents their annual Oscar party, and it's a live televised broadcast of the 87th annual Academ- Academy Awards, hosted by Neil Patrick Harris, and it's free admission, but you have to be 19 and up. Uh, doors are at 3 p.m. Red carpet begins at 4 p.m. And the contests during commercial breaks include Oscar trivia, best costume, and best acceptance speech. Also on the 22nd, um, call and response. An LGBTQ intergenerational performance evening. Uh, that's February 22nd from 5 to 7.30 at Britannia Services Centre. Uh, that's the Canucks Family Education Building, uh, 1001 Cotton Drive, right off Commercial, I believe. Um, 
Join us for an evening of digital media, spoken word, poetry, and stories from an innovative intergenerational collaboration. Over the last year, queer youth and queer elders have been exchanging writing uh, prompts, work, and critique, and the the results will entertain, amaze,